have some Leafs hockey to talk about. It's been a long break. COVID has hit the Leafs pretty hard. It's hit Ontario pretty hard. It's hit my workplace. It might have hit Anthony right now. It's everywhere. And I just want to talk about hockey. How are you doing, Anthony? It's been a time. Well, Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to all the listeners, first and foremost. It's been it's been tough. Like you're trying to get into a flow of things, right? And and even this week I was I was looking at potentially writing something and I went who am I kidding? They they played Ottawa. That game was embarrassing at best. I mean, the Leafs steamrolled them. It wasn't like the Leafs did anything embarrassing on their end, but in terms of being an overall hockey game, it was it was awful. Great for the Leafs, but awful in terms of actual hockey. It's not something you're going to take too much out of a weeknight game against the Senators. I mean, I guess it was a Saturday night game against the Senators, but you know what I mean. You're making any anyone trying to get any value out of that or whatever. It's just, it was point night. That's all it was. Justin Hall scored. That was the only thing that like slightly made me happy in it. He shaved that gross what roadkill that was stapled to his face earlier in the season. I actually felt good about that. I was like, this is a little symbolic. New year clean shaven face scores a goal justin whole train like come back on board ian it's happening yeah uh we'll see we'll see he looks a bit more confident jumping up into the play i like the fact that he beat his man up the ice activating into the play even on the penalty kill it was a power kill for him but it was nice to see that skating from him Exactly. He's at his best when he's jumping up into the play and trying to be that fourth forward with Jake Muzzin covering for him on the back end. I still don't love him on the breakout. It looks like below the goal line in the corners, he's still rough with his decision making and just quickly making the right read and the right pass. So there's still a lot of room for growth there. He's looked better in years past. He's played better on the breakout. He's looked way more composed in years past for some reason. It's just not happening this year. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that Jake Muzzin is having a career worst year, I think is fair to say. And Justin Hall has been stapled to his hip at the NHL level. So getting to play with Rasmus Sandin, I think, was nice. That opened up a bit of ice for Justin Hall. A bit more sheltered minutes with Riley Brody taking on some tougher usage. I I like it. I like, I think, you know, to your point, he needs to build up some confidence you know, what happened against Ottawa is the kind of thing that's going to make him feel better about his game. That, you know, he needs to just string together some positive vibes. The tough thing is right now, as, as you kind of alluded to with, with COVID and everything that's happening, is it's hard to get into a flow right now, right? You know, the Leafs play that game, and the next thing you want to do is you want to play another one. And everything is delayed, and it's really, really hard. Honestly, like, I find myself watching highlights right now, and it feels like preseason. I'm watching it going, do these games count? Like, are teams getting points in the standings? Because it doesn't feel real. 
I know my fantasy league combined two weeks to be ca- to count for one week, just because it's bizarre. It, there aren't enough games to really be a full week of NHL hockey. I know the Leafs, they played Saturday. They're going to have a Wednesday game against Edmonton, mcdavid list because of COVID. And then on Saturday against Colorado. It's yet to be seen what's going to happen in the city of Toronto, considering how few fans are allowed in the building. I don't know what's going to be the case there. I can't predict it. Omicron, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm good at analyzing hockey. When it comes to analyzing the pandemic, I kind of have to take it day by day. So we'll see what happens. I wanted to touch on a positive aspect of things, though, because it's the new year. And I know in Ontario right now, a lot of people are frustrated on Wednesday, I think, is when the Wednesday at midnight is when the lockdown comes into effect. So here's my positive take. I've been very tough on Morgan Riley over the last few years. As you know, I've been mad at him for his gap control, how much he gives up defensively. I've said that the pros aren't necessarily worth the cons and that we've been overrating him for the last few years. He's looked phenomenal this year. I don't think I can criticize him for anything. I think this might be, in my opinion, the best year of his career because his breakout year where he shot triple his career average and shooting percentage, that was never going to last. I thought that was a bit of a mirage. This year, a lot of what he's doing is sustainable. I love the way that, as always, offense jumping up into the play, activating and making the right reads off the rush, but he's getting back in time. He's not giving up as much defensively. And in transition, his gap's way tighter in the neutral zone. If you look at a simple two-on-two rush or even a three-on-two rush against. He's narrowing that gap at center ice. He's making a play on puck carriers. He's killing plays early. Those are things we haven't seen from Morgan Riley in years past, and it's something I've wanted to see for so long because you know he's an explosive skater, and I've been so frustrated watching him for years because you'd think a guy with that skating ability would be able to play a tighter gap in the neutral zone, would be able to keep the opposing forward closer to him when he's defending a rush. And I think he's done a great job of that this year. He also has the safety blanket of TJ Brody, who is going to stop every single two-on-one in the world with that slide that he's patented. And I think uh, Jonas Siegel had an article recently that showed that TJ Brody has the best goal differential among defensemen over the last two years. Not necessarily the best stat because of the wonkiness of save percentage and shooting percentage, but it goes to show that Brody's been excellent these last two years with the Leafs. I love that pairing, and I think they're the true de facto number one pairing in Toronto now with Jake Muzzin really struggling. Can't say a bad thing about TJ Brody. Can't say a bad thing about Morgan Riley. They've been spectacular this year, and I'm a big fan of what they can do for this team because they need to with how much Jake Muzzin's struggling. That's that's the biggest thing, right? Muzzin, Muzzin looks like he's declining, unfortunately, and Hole has not been as good. And they've needed Riley to be really, really good because of that. Better than, you know, since they've been good, this is about the most they've asked from him. Where it's like, you need to straight up be the dude in all facets of the game. And he is doing it. I can't think of a time where they've leaned on him this heavily. He's played big minutes before, but in terms of the difficulty of the shifts, more of them are coming in the defensive zone now. Even more PK responsibility. Like, they're straight up. They're, they're like PK, PP1, tough matchups, five on five, produce for us offensively. I can't think of time. The big thing is that late in a game where they're up by a goal, they're playing Riley and they're trusting Riley. And I think that's a situation where in years past, you're a bit hesitant to throw Riley out there because he might make a pinch where he's not supposed to make a pinch, or he might go for a stretch pass where you're thinking, ooh, let's just focus on a simpler play here. And I think he has a bit better uh, game sense in those instances. I think he's not forcing plays when they're not there. 
And for the last few years, he's been the best Leaf at successfully exiting the defensive zone with possession and also entering the offensive zone with possession. He's always been so good at that. He's so efficient in his puck moving. He doesn't do it all with his legs. He's doing more of it with his passing these days. I think early in his career, he'd come around the net and try to take it end-to-end every single time. He still jumps up in the play a lot. Anytime he has his man beat on a rush, he goes for it because he, he knows this is a chance for us to get a three-on-two or a four-on-three. This is a chance for us to attack with numbers, and that's my job as an offensive defenseman. But I think he's also situationally looking at the play when it's the right time to jump up, when it's the right time to maybe get back in time so this is a two-on-two instead of a two-on-one. And I think that's the biggest thing for me. In years past, there have been way too many odd man rushes when Morgan Riley's on the ice against. And this year, there haven't been nearly as many two-on-ones or three-on-twos against. I think he's reading the game better and doing a much better job at making sure he positions himself well in all three zones to make sure that's not happening. I think I think a few things happened. The first part, the offense part, and it really hit the the year that he scored twenty. And I think this is just a product sometimes of playing in junior, and he missed that year basically, right, with the with the knee injury in his draft year, which hurts. It does hurt when that kind of thing happens to you. That's such a critical development time in your career. But it in the WHL, especially if you go look back at even his highlights or whatever back in the day, which are hilarious, so you definitely should. They're funny in terms of how good he is you can you can go end to end and when he first started his career he tried to go end to end a lot you know not bobby or i'm taking the puck but he definitely wanted to carry it himself up the ice and make those plays happen on his own i mean the skill gap between him and teenage defensemen it kind of was like bobby or in the whl oh yeah in the dub but then when he got to nhl he was still doing it in terms of trying to rush the puck up heavy you know he wanted the puck on his stick while he was going up the ice. But, you know, before a little bit before that 20-goal season, it really started to click for him in terms of how he can still be dangerous offensively without the puck just by simply going up the ice. You know, he did such a better job of, like, becoming a trailer, becoming a backdoor threat, you know, those kinds of things. And so we're seeing all that. It's great. I think sometimes we probably... TJ Brody has to be the best two-on-one defenseman in the league. I mean, we're watching it the most in Toronto. The spotlight's on him. I'd be very curious as to how you measure that and who actually would be the best at it. I watch a ton of hockey. There's eight games on tonight or something. I have Game Center. I I will rifle through every single one. TJ Brody is borderline undefeated at two-on-ones. It is wild. He has the backdoor slide play. I've I've honestly been waiting for it for a year where someone kind of fakes it and he slides and then they're going to cut as he's sliding and and walk right in and score, and they're going to make him look silly as he's on his stomach. It hasn't happened yet, but it's helpful for Riley when he has a guy like that covering for him in the event that something does happen, whereas, you know, earlier on in his career, Matt Hunwick, Roman Polak, even Ron Hainsey, who I think fans give a a tough time, but I actually really liked Hainsey as a veteran stopgap who could, you know, bring along a young kid. Nikita Zaitsev, Cody Cece, he had some brutal partners. Yeah, Z- Zaitsev and Cece, I won't give the time of day to, but I did like I did like Hainsey to say, you know, here, go play with a young kid and teach him how to play the game. I didn't like Hainsey 22 plus minutes a night for 82 games. Yeah, they, they should have load managed him for sure. So all that to say is that I think at times if if Riley had a lesser partner we would probably still see some of the glaring things we just don't talk about them as much because 
you know, Brody helps make him look good, but that's why you actually need to invest in the defense and that we've talked about that trade off before. That's what, that's one thing Kyle Dubas did, right? I'm investing in the defense. I'm putting money in. I'm paying Jake Muzzin. I'm paying TJ Brody. Now he's paid Morgan Riley. But, you know, look at some of the guys that have gone the other way in order to facilitate that money movement, right? Kasperi Kapanen, Andreas Janssen, he's having a good year, by the way. That Rodriguez Kapanen line is one of the best lines in hockey. It's frightening. It's it, like, How is that happening? Evan Rodriguez is an analytic superstar this year. I, I remember when he, because he played college with Eichel, right? And Buffalo had him and they were like, this will be like our like our tag team. And it never really clicked, but yeah, he's been, he's been sick this year. So kudos to him. Can I make one more point on Riley before we transition to another yeah, topic? Yeah. So like you said about Riley, always trying to rush the puck up the ice. I think earlier in his career and even in some of his better years offensively, he went on a lot of lone wolf rushes where he'd pick the puck up in his own end, try to skate through everyone. And after gaining the offensive zone, he's so good at exiting the defensive zone and entering the offensive zone, those zone entries that I love talking about. But one of the frustrating things about a a guy like Riley or in years past, Michael Grabner did it, Jake Vertanen does it on Ottawa, guys who gain the zone and then shoot. They don't look for the pass. They don't try to draw a defender out and then make that sauce to the middle of the ice. They gain the zone and shoot it from the top of the circle. Kasperi Kapanen did it a lot too. And they're low percentage plays. There are much higher percentage opportunities if you can actually try to make that pass through the middle of the ice. Riley's done such a better job in the last couple of years at looking for the pass instead of the shot. And when you can create a pass off the rush, it's one of the highest percentage plays in hockey. There's a lot of stats and research that show it's one of the best predictors of future offense. And it makes sense because off the rush, getting the goalie to move laterally in this crease... Just naturally, that seems like a high percentage play. Riley's one of the best players in the world at completing those plays, and he's not forcing those shots anymore. He's going for the high percentage passes through the middle of the ice, and he's completing them at a, I want to say, 96th, 97th percentile rate among defensemen. That's why the Leafs paid him. That's why they believe his offensive ability. I was reading an article recently about how we measure performance and how we predict performance at the team level. And I know nerds like myself love talking about expected goals and shots and scoring chances. And there's a reason we care about these things. They are predictive of future results. But Dom Lushijan at The Athletic loves to push back that, hey, points are super predictive too. And don't forget about points when we're evaluating players. I know the Micah Blake McCurdy's and the Evolving Wilds of the world will tell you that we shouldn't care too much about points, but this article that I was reading the other day was talking about how points are an excellent predictor for forwards and for defensemen of future goal scoring. And I know that doesn't come as a shock to anyone who's watched hockey for a long time. They are time, a predictor. But Morgan Riley does points. He does points and he creates those plays off the rush. I know sometimes with analytics, we do go too far. We're trying to push back against this points are the only thing that matter. Leon Dreisaitl is the MVP. But then we start overrating expected goals and underrating the importance of finishing talent. So there is a balance to be drawn there. And I just wanted to make the point that Morgan Riley makes high percentage plays offensively that are going to lead to points, which are goals. And goals are good. And the Leafs are first in the league and are top three in a lot of offensive metrics. And it's because of players like Riley. So one of one of the dumbest things that happens on the on the points piece there that you mentioned is in order to try to bring a point of note down to something more realistic in terms of the value of points, let's say, people then, particularly on Twitter, overcompensate with another point in order to downplay 
whatever they think is more mainstream and not as predictive or descriptive or whatever the case is. And it is the absolute Can you elaborate worst. a bit on what you mean? Just because I'm a bit so, confused. So essentially, people will take something like points and they'll be like, it does not matter at all. Yeah, this happened with face-offs too. This happens with a lot. Right? And instead of just saying like, hey, like points don't matter as much as you think that they do. There was a good like couple year stretch where people were like, points don't matter at all. I don't look at them anymore for my analysis. I don't care. Points aren't important. I'm like, well, <laughs> goals are important. I get what you're saying. Like what leads into the goals is important to help predict the goals. But at the end of the day, shooting talent is a real thing. And not just shooting talent, but I think for defensemen, the fact that primary assists and secondary assists are predictive of future goals, it's the ability to get that puck moving east-west. It's the ability to break down a set defense or break down a rush defense. It's great to transition the puck from defense to offense, but if you can't break down the defense in the attacking third and that final portion of the net, it's, it's kind of like Kyle Clifford's a good example. His shot metrics have always been great throughout his career, but he can never get to that goal. He can get the puck from defense to offense. He can cycle it in the offensive zone, but he can't get points. He can't get goals. He can't get assists because he can't break down a set defense, whereas Morgan Riley can, and that's what makes him valuable. Yeah, even for me, I look at um, like a player I really like is Warren Fogle. I think he's a really nice player, but he's not a great goal scorer. Like he's, he's just not a great like shooting talent, right? But there's a lot of underlying numbers. You'll see that quite like him as a player, especially when he was on Carolina. I think he's having some bad shooting luck this year, so I know the goals above replacement don't love him this year. Yeah, but he was never like a never a great scorer on Carolina. I think even Carolina recognized them that as part of the trade they're going. We like him. He's a good player that helps drive play or he's great on the cycle. He's he's a really good four checker. I really liked Warren Fogel and I would have been happy if the Leafs acquired him, but but they sat there and went he's not he can't score enough. And we have potential to get a right-handed top four defenseman. Yeah, you know who could use a right-handed top four defenseman? The Edmonton Oilers. <laughs> they're And they're about to be in town. You know, I will be so... I know we were talking about this before we started recording. I'm going to be so pissed off if they hire Babs, like, next week. And we miss... Yeah, because I know you really wanted to see Babcock game one against the who Leafs wouldn't? with McDavid. Yeah. <laughs> who wouldn't? Anyone who says otherwise is lying to themselves, like... You could like the guy, dislike the guy, whatever. But in terms of pure entertainment at a time when we need it, if next week I'm sitting here going, these guys did it, they hired him, and it was a we were a week out, I'm going to be cheesed because I was watching that Tippett interview, you were watching that Tippett interview, and that to me was a guy that was like, I'm probably getting fired, or if they're not thinking about it, I'm putting it in, the, in their minds myself because that, that was not great. Well, anytime you can blame your goaltender instead of yourself for your team's lack of good fortune, uh, yeah, you got to do it, right? I mean, they're a weird one to me too, though. Because speaking of Warren Fogel, like I don't get why you don't just say go play with McDavid and then put Hyman on line three and be like, you need to carry this line yourself. I don't we get even, why we they said don't do that it. the second Hyman said there is that McDavid doesn't need a Hyman. McDavid yeah. can make anyone good, so use Hyman and he can make other players good. Yeah, like I don't for the normal flow of a game, like why wouldn't you do that for the first two periods and then the I'd third, love to see it. And then you load up the power play with Hyman, with Nuge, with Drysaddle, yeah. McDavid. Their power play sick. It'd be fine. I actually think Babs would do a good job there. 
I know people don't like him, but I think, I think he would Babs do would job. do a good job anywhere. I, I, I've argued this for a long time. Is that not just because I have certain quibbles with the man and some certain frustrations doesn't mean I think he's a bad five on five coach. I think everywhere he's gone, he improves their roster. He, he gets the most out of not necessarily the most talented teams, which I think is a very valuable trait in a coach. You, you might not like him, and you might not like the way he goes about his business, and all of that's completely fair. But in terms of some of the comments I see, it's just like, it's wild. It's like At the same time, I can understand why people are frustrated with Mike Babcock over the last year or two. It's not exactly a shocker. But like if they hired Paul Maurice, people would be like lining up happy. I would not be. Paul Maurice is the yeah. opposite of what we just described in yeah. terms of getting the most out of your roster. But he's a good guy and he gives good interviews and people like him. And that's him. the thing. I like him as a human being. I'd want to have a beer with him. You know, he's the 100%. kind of guy you'd, you'd love to have over for Christmas dinner. We he's should that get kind him on guy. this podcast. I'd love to have him. He seems like a nice guy. But then I'd also bring up the fact and be like, hey, uh, your roster's consistently had way better talent than the actual results they were getting at 5-on-5. Five five. Why do you think that was? Yeah, like what happened here? Whereas friend of the podcast, Bruce Boudreaux, they yeah, dummy I'm go- things. I'm going, here's why your teams were so good. Can you explain what you did to make them good? Yeah. And their answers are always simple. Like, I know everyone always wants complicated things. He just said, be like, your power play was disgusting, like, year after year. And, like, he came on and he's like... Yeah, I would just put it up at the top and tell guys to fire it away. And uh, yeah, I don't think he made Ovechkin. I don't think he had too much to do with the best goal scorer no, ever. Not. But that wasn't goals. the only team that he coached. Yeah, no, I liked his ability to get the puck below the goal line and create create efficient shots through, from passes behind the net. But he didn't go crazy. I know people always want like some sort of like crazy ass story or like system or whatever. But like the most simple things, which I thought was interesting. About can I can I be that guy for a sec? I really don't. I don't like, know what you're about to say, but go for I it. I don't like the Michigan goal. Oh my god! You, I think oh, it's terrible. Hello, John Tortorella. Welcome no, to the podcast. And and this is why I don't think it's fair to defend it because if a guy has a stick up there, what can you do? Like I would tomahawk the shit. I, I would I would literally axe his stick. And then if someone said some anything, say, to me, can you hit the goalie in the head? Is that potentially a risk? I'm of the opinion that can I just give you what I think in terms of those kind of plays? I want players to make us think that something that we think is impossible. I want them to do the impossible. I don't think it's impossible, man. We can go. We can go practice with like a 14 year old AAA team in Toronto in the GTHL, and like 10 of those kids on and any given team can do that. It's not want, good. I want creativity in the game. I want skilled players to try skilled things. I want Trevor Zegras to keep trying crazy stuff. That's fine. The flip is fine. I got what Tortorello was saying there. I don't. I think he didn't deliver the message well. I understood what he was saying there, but the the lacrosse goal. You know, do you remember when Chris Pronger showed up Tampa Bay and the one three one? Was it him? Yeah, it was Chris Pronger, of course. Well, oh, he was Chris on Pronger. the ice doing it. It was Peter Laviolette behind the yeah. bench, right? Yeah, yeah, but Chris Pronger was the one who like stood there with the puck and didn't move a muscle. Do you remember that for like? Literally, oh no, no, like, five a lot minutes. of us remember that. Yeah, no, and I kind of loved it because I think the league should ban zone defense in the in the one three one. But as a guy, as a guy who grew up playing defense, I think the lacrosse goal is such dog shit. I don't know how you defend it if a guy is standing behind the net and is able to you know, maneuver his arms where you can't even make contact with his body unless you're behind the net with him. How can you defend it? I Are would... you saying it's not fair because someone did something that's really cool? No, I'm saying it's not fair because there's no legal way in which a defenseman can cover it. There's nothing you can do. That's not fair. 
How is that fair, though? Can Can I bring up something that you mentioned earlier about how sometimes right before, coaches just right say Right before the this, thing. though. Well, I was going to okay. say, because I would pronger that. I would axe it. I would be having my stick come, like, over my head, and I would break someone's stick. And then when I got ass-bloated, I would just say, there's nothing I could do. Otherwise, the league has no rules instituted for me as a defenseman to do my job. And that's not fair. Well, you said earlier, with respect to... Sometimes coaches just say the simple thing and it gets results. Yeah. I think Daryl Sutter is a perfect example of that. I don't think Daryl Sutter is opening up moneypuck.com every morning. I don't think he's doing that. He doesn't give a shit. But by telling his players to play fast, attack, skate downhill, get in on the forecheck, and make sure that we're on the right side of the puck, his teams end up having unbelievable five-on-five metrics because they always have the puck. They're always on the right side of center ice. And it's, it's so simple. It's just a 2-1-2 four-check where you keep the puck pinned to the corner and you keep your team on the cycle and you're right on top of them. You don't give them room in the neutral zone. Do you see who their 4C is? Uh, no, who is it now? Sean Monaghan. <laughs> I, I mean, that's him, accurate with respect to his defensive ability. I feel completely vindicated because last year when they hired Sutter, we sat here and we were like gushing over. We're like, Calgary's going to be a problem. And like, if Calgary makes it, like they're going to be an issue. And then it, they didn't get the new coach bump. They didn't get the new coach bump to the level that, you know, like they had it for like two weeks and then like reality hit. But instead of like mass changes, Sutter basically just sat there the rest of the season. Now, like when I look back on it in retrospect and he was like, this roster's shit. And like, I can't handle these. Like, is the, the roster that much he, different this year? I think it's not, but like Markstrom's he's moved, making saves this year. But he's moved it around a little bit more to his liking, right? Where he's like, all right, like, I'm going to go. Because he had Sean Monaghan as his 1C last year. And he would come out after games, which was the funniest thing ever. I know I've mentioned here before where he'd be like, their top two centers were better than our top two centers. Like, he didn't care. This guy used to have Kopitar and Jeff Carter and Mike Richards. Well, remember how we were talking about points earlier? Sean Monaghan always had high points, but he's one of those players who they're empty calories. He's not doing much to drive play up the ice. I can't believe he had like an 83-point season or something. Like he had a 34-goal year. Johnny Gaudreau, he can thank Johnny Gaudreau for that. Yeah, <laughs> who's having a nice year, and, and he's going to be in line to get paid. But Cal, like he, he's kind of got them. But, I mean, Blake Coleman is a significant addition. Speaking of anti-points, Blake Coleman is a significant ad- addition. Mark Giordano is also a significant loss. Yeah. I mean, he was on the he was on the downswing. They needed a be- they needed a bounce back year from Rasmus Anderson. You know who's quietly turning into a nice player? You say Oliver Shillington? Noah Hannafin. Okay, because well, Oliver Shillington's been awesome this year. Yeah, but Noah Hannafin's like playing like twenty two plus a night and driving play and has been reasonably productive. Who's his partner? Is he playing with Tanev? He's playing with Rasmus Anderson too, who was dog oh, okay. shit last year and who's having a nice rebound. So. Kudos to Noah Hannafin because obviously a lot of fans remember him at the Mitch Marner draft. Took him a while to get going. I mean, we're looking at it with Morgan Riley right now, right? To some degree. Like, this is the I, best I, he's I, ever I looked. I want to say Timothy Lilligren. I don't know how good Timothy Lilligren's going to end up being, but, you know, he's, what, 22, 23 now? And for a long time, people are saying bust. Riley, Riley's close to turning 30. He's going to have probably his best ever season right now in terms of overall impact on a game. Yeah, 200-foot play, I definitely agree. He's not going to touch the 20-goal, 73-point season, I don't think, but in terms of production, but in terms of it's overall play. It's more sustainable, play, and I, I prefer this version to that 20-goal season. Yeah, and someone asked us too, and I, I know you'll get to more formal questions after, but someone asked us about Nick Robertson, and he's different because he's a winger, but I just – 
the expectations were too high on him in the first place. Like we constantly tried to temper that throughout the off season and whatnot. Like I don't know why people ever thought that they were. I remember even when uh, uh, when Dory was on the podcast with us, we were like, "Why are people like penciling this guy into the top six? Like, go play in the A, and like learn how to play the game for whatever." And even when uh, the former Leafs video coach was on with us, I was like, "Why would you not put this guy in the A and be like, go learn how to go learn how to be a pro for a year or two? And that's what happened with Timothy Logren, right? It wasn't that fancy, and there were points where you're like. What's he going to become? Well, I don't think people realize Michael Bunting was going to be a first-line left winger. Yeah, and I'm still not sure if he is. Like, I think... But in, you know what I mean. He's putting yeah, up results on a first line at a good rate. Yeah. I don't think he's a top 90 player in the NHL. I'm not saying that. I don't think I don't think they'll ever do this, so this is more like fantasy land for me. But I know you wanted to talk about him, and I don't think they will. Again, I'll reiterate, just it's more on my end because I'm still not a fan of him overall. I would look at selling high on Kerfoot and bringing in like a real... <laughs> I've been saying actually, this for so long. And I would bring in like a real top six winger. Like I would be looking to sell high on this guy and say to myself, how do I bring in, you know, Thomas Hurdle? How do I bring in someone of that caliber where you're going, okay, this guy's legitimately really good. Because if I'm watching in the playoffs again and it's, and it's Mitch Marner has the yips, you know, year three... And Michael Bunting, who's a nice player, but he's not beating guys one-on-one. He's not scoring with his shot from He's distance. making some nice passes off the rush. He's facilitate. He's helping to facilitate nice plays when other guys set the table for him. But he's not setting the table for himself. He's not breaking down the defense. He's not. He, yeah. But I, I love the fact that he can get the puck off the rush on a three-on-two or four-on-three and make the next play. He's not a black hole. He's not killing rushes, which is what a, I thought he was going to do in that role. Yeah, which is great. Like, I'm completely here for it. I love it. I think, ideally, you sit there and go, that guy is our is our sixth forward who's, the like, he's six of six, and he's playing with Tavares and, and Nylander on the second line. And that's that's if I'm going full, I'm pushing, like I'm making moves, like I don't really care what's happening, like I'm trying to win a Stanley Cup this year kind of thought process, because that would be my only thing. I mean, I think the provided, God forbid, that they stay healthy, the Mikheyev, Camp, Cache line, other than Camp being a little questionable offensively, is about as good of a, a third line. A little questionable? I know, but <laughs> if... if if Mikheyev can be a legit like 10-15 goal guy, and he's also looked awful in the playoffs when it's come to doing anything remotely resembling, and he would have to. He would have to be a contributor offensively, and I have no question that Kasha can. I've been saying that Mikheyev's shooting percentage would come back eventually, and everyone told me I was insane, so I feel I felt a bit vindicated the other night. I feel like scoring on Matt Murray on a breakaway is like... <laughs> Something had to give, uh, you know? And, and I tweeted at the time, too. I was like, oh, if Mikheyev's scoring on B-Ways, it's going to be a sick year. And I stand by now that. Do two, now do a two-on-one. Yeah, d- <laughs> definitely. Let's do a two-on-one. If he gets a two-on-one and floats a muffin into the logo, I would sit there and be like, all right, we, we took it too far. You know, next game that they play, if he's going down on Koskinen after he's been lit on fire by Dave Tippett and he floats one into his crest, we go, ah, it's not Matt Murray anymore. He just needs to get David Kampf to teach him how to score two-mile-per-hour shots five-hole. How can I do that, David Kampf? Teach me your ways. That line is the question, right? Where if, if they're going to be... but Because I liked I liked the grunt work that Mikheyev did against the Habs in the playoffs. He did. He had 
especially in the games that they won when the Leafs needed shifts where it was like, let's cycle down there, let's wear them out, let's kill clock in a non-dangerous way where they're not like speed bagging us shift after shift. He was great. Like if the other guys score, Mikheyev will be fantastic at putting a puck deep, getting it back, you know, making the other team's top line waste a shift in their own zone. He'll be great. Great on the it. penalty kill as well. It's another yeah. thing where he's excellent. But if you're gonna be top nine, the game is tied, which is a situation we talk about all the time. The game is tied. You're down by one. You're in that down by one tied zone. You need to chip in a little bit. See, here's the thing. If you're tied, I still like Mikheyev because of the defensive value. When you're down by one, that's where it gets concerning. You need you need three lines. You can't just sit there in the final 10 and, and say, we're rolling two lines. Down by one, that's where I start to look to get Spets some more minutes and maybe look at pulling back guys like Camp and Mikheyev. For sure, right? So, so what are your 12, what are your optimal 12 right now? I'm glad you asked. So speaking of camp, Kasha, that line you were discussing, I have a stat that I want to mention. Engvall, camp, and Kasha did really well together, like north of 55% in shots, scoring chances, expected goals, all the things we care about. Nick Ritchie alongside camp and Kasha was a disaster. They got stuck in the defensive zone. They couldn't move the puck up the ice. They weren't generating chances. It was, I want to say, in the 45% range, just getting buried at 5-on-5. Five five. This is more evidence that Nick Ritchie just isn't doing anything to advance play up the ice, and he's not finishing either. I think the finishing part will come in time. I don't know if it's going to be on this team. We'll see. That's that's yet to be determined. The forward depth's important, though, in the COVID times, It, it yep. uh, just because no, you don't fine. know. That, that was why I like the Clifford acquisition. I was, I was like, this dude can play in the league. He can. He can take shifts. So I am trying to say here, I'm like, that's more evidence to me that Pierre Engvall is a better hockey player than Nick Ritchie. And I don't I don't feel crazy saying that out loud. I like what Pierre Engvall does. I know he frustrates a lot of people, but I think he's one of Toronto's 12 best forwards. I think Spets is. I think Wayne Simmons is having one of the better years of his career in a, in a long time. This is the best Wayne Simmons has looked, I don't know, since he was on the Flyers. <laughs> he does look good. He's generating chances at a high rate. He's skating fast. He's completing way more passes than I remember him completing in a Leafs uniform. And then you go up through the rest of the lineup. Uh, I think Kerfoot, even though I have some quibbles, and maybe we can get into those a bit later, I still think he's one of your 12 best forwards. On Engvall and Richie, I'll I'll say this. Richie has the ability to bring like a, a level of physicality that no one else on the team can at forward. See, here's the thing. Does he? he in terms of In terms of how big he is and if he wanted to, but my point with that is he needs to do it to make himself useful because honestly, if I'm if I'm Keith, you know the you know the vanilla Jimmy VC comment, which was hilarious. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's Jimmy VC. Like he couldn't do shit at any point ever. That was always gonna be the case. But if you're Keith now, you look at Richie and you just go, I don't need you here to score. I don't care if you score twenty or fifteen or twenty. That's pointless to me. But if if you go out there and you you crush some guys, you inflict some pain on opposing defensemen you're doing something that nobody else on the team can do and that's how you become a valuable linchpin in a roster right we always talk about guys needing a role unless you're really good you don't need a role right you know he needs to play more like wayne simmons yeah but if you're if he sits there and goes like you're gonna put you're gonna you're gonna cause chaos you're just gonna go out there 
like Kyle Clifford to me is more valuable to than Richie to, with what he's doing because at least you know at least Clifford knows his role. And I trust Clifford way more defensively. And ter- we were talking about driving play. Clifford drives play. He can't score for the life of him, but he drives play. He's actually moving around pretty nicely out there. That was always my concern when they got him back. I was like, hey, can he skate still? He can. He can make he, he can make passes at a way better rate than you'd think for a yeah. guy who's known for his fighting. He's good on the cycle. But he gets it, and that's the frustrating thing. I think you could put, I think you could put uh, Clifford out there, and you don't have to say a word to him. He knows his job. He knows what he's there for. The guy's a pro. I mean. The guy was a regular on a cup-winning team. He only played eight minutes or whatever in that cup run, but he played. And there's something to be said about a guy that dresses every night on a cup run. And he actually made a nice play on the Alec Martinez overtime-winning goal. So as of right now, top 12 forwards, you have Bunting, Matthews, Marner in your top six. You have Nylander with Tavares and, let's say, Kerfoot for now. Has to be Third Kerfoot. line looks like Mikheyev, Camp, Kasha. That looks pretty good. We'll yeah. assume that sticks. Spezza, Simmons aren't going anywhere. So it's, it's really Engvall. down to Engvall and Richie, and I think Engvall's done enough this year to prove that he's the better player. And Clifford. Yeah, I, might have, I think I have Clifford above Nick Richie. I think you try to find a dumb team who wants to trade for a big, strong guy like Nick Richie. I really, I really like Engvall when he's on his game, but let's I not kid ourselves. Engvall will always need the Sheldon Keefe. You're taking a seat for a few. I can't watch you anymore. But my point with Clifford being a pro and Richie being essentially lazy at this point is Richie you have to get on his ass all the time and at some point it's just exhausting you get that there's a reward there I mean the guy is is he is massive and he does have a 235 240 like uh, the way he's moving around there might be a little bit more Uh, (laughs) so so yeah sure whatever that's reported as and take that with a grain of salt but the reward is there if you can actually get him to get going. But the thing with him is you just at some point as a coach, as, as any person managing another human being all time, you go, I just don't need this shit in my life. I don't Where need can to you go play to him? He's, he's proven that he can't play on that Camp Kasha line. I think you can only play him with Spezza at this point because I don't think you can play him in the top six. I think, I, think he, I think he'll get an opportunity at some point where it's like, you know, someone in the top six is is out whether it's like a covid positive test or whatever just like a normal injury or whatever the case is and he's gonna get another look he is that'll happen Tavares Nylander you can see it working out. I mean anyone could play there realistically yeah and and I think he'll get a look and it'll it'll be on him to come out with some some flair and some you know he just for a big strong dude he doesn't he's not as mean there's no meanness to him. Like Simmons is Frederick Gauthier uh, syndrome where he goes into the corner and avoids contact. And you're thinking, dude, just plow the guy. Like, I don't even know if I would call Simmons mean, but he's definitely crazy. Like if, when you heard him, like when you heard him on the Amazon prime stuff, like he was nuts. Like the way that he yells at people and stuff in the game. You love it though. You want, Oh, I totally love it. I completely love it. Don't get, but he's insane. Whereas I, you look at Richie and people make, People take the photos all the time. I'm just laughing. Oh my god, the memes on, on the bench of, of his, his face, face. <laughs> and he's just—he's out for a float, man. Like, it's crazy. He's someone like, in hockey. Someone was asking me, "He's like, why, why does Jay Gardner get so much hate? Like, why do people hate him so much?" And I'm like, "I bet you, if his face didn't look the way it did on the bench after a goal against, people wouldn't hate him as much. But he just looks so aloof on the bench. They look like your relatives at like Christmas dinner, like the old." relatives at the christmas dinner that just don't know what the fuck's going on and they're just <laughs> sitting there calling him senile calling nick Ritchie. 
And I'm not calling him senile, but he looks just completely clueless when you're watching him. You're just like, like, are you involved in this game? And, and this I'll, is dumb. This is really dumb. What does this have to do with evaluating his actual play? No, just saying, like, where's your heartbeat? Like, where is... And I'll go back to this game until he proves otherwise. But when they played the Bruins Saturday night and he literally did nothing, I was just... That that game was, for me, it was so telling. It was like, that dude, that team actively cut you as an RFA. And you're with the Leafs. And it's Saturday night. How could you not be charged up for that game? Like, how could you not go out that in that game with a pulse? And all that, say, to your point of what's that to do with anything is... Is like, how are you getting through to this guy to unlock him? Because there is some ability there for him to do stuff, but it's not showing it. So it's take a seat for now. Ingval, you're in. The one thing I'll say about Ingval too on that camp cash line is he might have been the best one on that line of carrying the puck. Yeah, he's a good puck transporter, and this is what it matters. Carrying the puck D zone to O zone with possession, it really matters. So I'm kind of curious with with Mikheyev there. Because he's not, like, he's better than Engvall overall. But he's not as good at carrying the puck as Engvall. Wait, who are you saying is better than Engvall overall? Mikheyev? Mikheyev. Mikheyev is I think a better I'd agree. I think player. I'd agree with that. If you say Engvall is better, I will fight you. But I think he's becoming very underrated by Leafs fans. Just in terms of his overall impacts on the game at 5-on-5. Five five, he's historically scored at a third-line rate. I, I think he's an NHL player who gets treated like a guy who's about to get waived. And I think he can play. He is a... No, he is an NHL player... He does have a bomb. I know we've talked about it a few times. He has a cannon. I mean, he, he knows it. He tries to fire it from the boards all the time. I don't care, though. If you're <laughs> if you're on the third or fourth line, and, and I, I mean, if you're on the fourth line with Spezza, you can at least make an argument to like give Spezza the puck. But Spezza does it, too. Spezza's like, I have a bomb. How many times does Spezza rip that low clapper off the he boards? He scored from the like, Rockstar Zone. Yeah, he doesn't give a shit. He's like, I have a bomb. I'm just going to let it go. Whatever happens, happens. But Spezza's shot selection is never something you're watching and going, that was a terrible shot. Whereas with Engvall, you say it a lot. If Engvall's sitting there on a line with David Kampf and he goes, yeah, I'm just going to take my chances by throwing this bomb on net, see what happens. All day. That's why I'm so impressed with Andre Kasha's game. Because you look at his point production this year when he's been strapped to David Kampf. That's really impressive. How do you score when you're playing with David Camp? If Engvall was doing that shit with Matthews and Marner, I'd be like, fire this guy to the sun. But well, if he's going to sit there, there, yeah, if he's going to sit there with third liners and just say, I have the best shot on this line, I'm shooting it no matter what. <laughs> Why would you say no to that? I think Andre Cash would be upset with those shots, thinking I have a way better shot than you. Well, maybe it, not way better, but I have a better chance of getting to the better areas and scoring. Kasha has a better chance of finishing but he doesn't have a better shot than Engvall like pure shot he can get to the scoring areas better and that's where he gets his goals yeah I think I think Engvall I don't know if we ever talked about this before because I've mentioned it to other people not on this podcast but I think Engvall is an unbelievable practice player oh like six foot five crazy fast skates hard like the shot. wind has yeah. a bomb yeah. I think he looks unbelievable in practice that's my guess I think he looks just unreal if you're even if you're even a guy, let's say Rasmus Sandin, who is a better player than Pierre Engvall, obviously. But you don't get to show how quickly you can read the game in a practice. But but if you're doing a drill and Rasmus Sandin is five eleven or whatever, and Pierre Engvall is six five, kind of slow foot speed, wide, Rasmus Sandin, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and Engvall's way faster, and he can hold the puck out wide to a level that you literally can't touch him. He probably looks unbelievable. And everyone early on was going, why is this guy on the power play? And I was sitting there the whole time thinking, 
it's probably because he's disgusting in practice. You Did you ever watch him on the Marlies power play? I know this is a bit of a deep cut here. Yeah, a little bit. On the half wall? Yeah, they, like... they kind of ran it through him and said, our goal is to get you a shot from the dot. And he scored a bunch of goals from there. He's He's... There's pieces to his game that are really nice, but then he, he's just the king of, you don't know when it's going to happen, but he has games where if you're Keith, you have to just sit there on the bench now. And I think Keith is doing a better job of identifying it as he becomes more comfortable in the role. And it does take time to get to know the players, especially deeper down the lineup where it's going, he's having a brain dead night. That's what he does. He just has nights where you're going, I don't know what he's doing. But you know those nights where, where William Nylander just isn't as engaged you know, in puck battles or on the forge. It's kind of like that. It's like, well, he doesn't have that gear tonight, so maybe we'll cut back the minutes a bit. Yeah, but sometimes with Nylander, you have to sit there and go, he's still one of our best players. We're just going to have to, you know, that's what I think sometimes makes Keefe such a really good regular season coach, whereas in the playoffs, I think it's not like that. Keefe is really good at riding out percentages and slumps in the aggregate if you give this guy 18 plus minutes he's gonna do goals he understands it and and he and i think a lot of people generally understand it you know i don't think you know it was like when matthews was struggling early on and marner and we were sitting here and going these guys aren't gonna score you know marner's not gonna have 13 points this year yeah, but Matthew's shooting percentage at five on five was absurdly low. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, I think everyone understands that those things are going to bounce back up. But when you're in the heat of coaching every single day, you're in the grind, you're seeing the guys, you know, every single day, like you're, you know, you're right, your face is right up towards the puzzle. I think Keith is really good at, at taking a step back and like a deep breath and just understanding, okay, these, this will ride out. We will be fine. I'm not worried. I think he does a really good job with that. As a side note, can I mention that Jason Spezza is kind of my go-to in terms of quotes for getting stuff like that? I remember when Matthews was going through a scoring slump and Spezza laughed and said, I think the least of our concerns is Austin Matthews scoring goals. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think where he gets himself into trouble is he sits there in the playoffs and he'll do something like, the Leafs are up 3-1, I'm going to healthy Dermot and try to get Sandine a game, right? Where you need to be a little bit more cutthroat and right to it you're not sitting there going ah let me get this young guy into a playoff game before we get to the next round because we might need him on the power play later shit like that you got there's the there infamous go, Tavares Matthews Marner loading it up putting Nylander at center that was a disaster I, I know it's a one game sample I don't want to take too much out of it but I understand your argument yeah that's what the playoffs are at times you got to sit there at, you know and they their foot was on the throat and instead he went I'm gonna fuck around with the lineup which I know we've talked about ad nauseum well some coaches do some coaches don't what's the right approach and the playoffs I think if you just steamroll the team and game four was one of the best playoff games I've seen the Leafs play in the last decade in terms of just pure dominance yep you sit there and you go back into the room and you just say, like, we dummied these guys and I expect us to do it again. We're going to come back with this exact same lineup and shove it right down their throat. At and the same didn't. time, the reason he wanted to get Sandine in the lineup is because as we're seeing this year, Sandine's unbelievable at moving he the is. puck up the ice, at making the right reads, at drawing in a defend or sorry, drawing in a four tracker and then getting your team up the ice with numbers. But but he's also now getting into a flow of games and has been with the team all season. Like, he barely played last that year. Like, it made no sense to do it. And, look, all I'm saying to the point is I think he does a really good job of understanding the course of an 82-game season and trying to navigate the highs and lows and the peaks and valleys. And I think he has a good, calm, you know, 
head on his shoulders for those moments. But I think in the playoffs, you can't, you don't get those kinds of let's let this roll, which has been constantly their answers after things haven't worked. Right. Well, that's like, a, that's uh, a lot of the times the way I look at it. It's oh well, we shot two percent in a seven game sample. What do you want me to do? You got to try things, whatever it is. You got to try them. Like, right? well, I guess I'd, I'm my follow up is I don't know what I don't know how you can fix that. Yeah, I mean. I don't want to like completely go back to the Habs series the whole time, but like at some point you could have looked and said like, do we take Hyman off the top line and have him carry the third line to try to get some depth here? Because obviously it's not flying. Do you know? At you know even game six he moves bets up. They tied the game. They go into overtime. He puts all the lines back. And I know that they outshot them a ton. Hey man, I hate oh, I hate overanalyzing that overtime. Man. I don't even want to think about it anymore. Yeah, I just think it's a weird message that. Like the the lineup that you config you reconfigured mid game that ended up tying the game you like go back in the room and you're like, yeah that's not our lineup to try to ice the game at this point. Can I ask you a question while we're talking about Sandine? It did come up earlier. So Muzzin, they finally I don't know if we can call it a healthy scratch because I'm not sure if he was unhealthy if there was an illness there. It's it's tough to know. They don't give us too much information. But I do wonder if with Muzzin's struggles and the fact that he's 32 and coming off of that injury that he suffered in the playoffs. Do we see Sandine get a bit of a tougher load here, and maybe Lilligren as well, in terms of the fact that they've been dominating easy usage. They've been dominating sheltered usage. I'm not saying go from 5th percentile usage to 95th percentile usage. I'm not saying go from completely sheltered to facing McDavid every single shift. But I do wonder if you can give him a bit tougher of a load because he's proven he can handle these sheltered minutes. And I'd like to see if a Lilligren or a Sandine want to see these guys get tougher minutes and yeah, they won't be crushing it at the 69% expected goals that they have right now, but can they get above 50 against pretty decent competition? Cause I think they can, I think they're very good puck movers. And at the end of the day, I think if you're advancing the puck up the ice wall and you're defending the rush wall, I think you're going to have positive results at five and five. So I'm hesitant to use a term like he's proven that he can like crush the third pair. I'm sure he can, and I'm sure he will. I, but, I mean, he's only played, what, 25 games this year? Well, he's just doing it to such an absurd degree, first in sure. the league and all those metrics, where I go, yeah, he's he's passed this test. This is too easy for him. Give him a tougher challenge. I'm sure it'll be fine, but overall, it's 25 games. And that's fair. I, Hockey's I, I a, just, a sport where you need a larger sample. I'm okay with letting a defenseman just, and I know I said this before about Sandine, like, I'm okay just saying he's sick on the third pairing. Just, like, leave him be. I think Lilligren is a different story. And my, my hesitation with Sandine, at least for this year, possibly going into next year, depending how this year ends, for him will always be like, he just hasn't played a lot of hockey over the past like calendar year and a half. So I'm happy to just like let him have games and develop, essentially. I'd, like, I wouldn't throw too much at him too fast. Lilligren, I feel differently about, because Lilligren grinded his way through in the A. Like He's been playing pro hockey for years now. And I think that there's a distinguisher there. So Lilligren, I would actually be a lot more willing to say, yeah, you can go up there with Muzzin and let's see what happens. See, I'm comfortable with both those guys going because I think Muzzin Hall are really struggling. I think Sandine and Lilligren are thriving. I think they need to lighten the load on Muzzin Hall and, and toughen up the load on Sandine and Lilligren. I also don't like the dynamics of going. I don't think they would ever do this either because of the dynamics of this. I just don't think you could go to Muzzin already and be like, yeah, we're going to put you on pair three. He'd be like, what the fuck? I'm not saying that per se, but I'm saying 
make the minutes closer between Sandine and Muzzin. But what you're inevitably saying is that what would end up happening, right? And I think Muzzin would sit there and be like... Maybe wait till next year till that officially happens. But this year, start to increase those minutes for Sandine. Start to give him more shifts against the other team's top six because I know they've been actively avoiding that. Yeah, and I also just wonder, and not that I have anything that's like flagged this for me otherwise, like has Muzzin been healthy this whole season? I don't think so. And I, if he has been, that's even more concerning. Uh, yeah, and if he hasn't been, I'd be like, get healthy and start playing better hockey. Because I just, I don't know. I do think he's declining. I don't think he's gone to shit as a hockey player. He's not that old. I know he has mileage. It, his last couple of years for the Leafs, puck moving it was never something that he did well. It was away from the puck. It was defensively, and... I think it's the way he defends the rush is what concerns me the most now. He's not handling speed as well this year as he has in years past. He's been roasted more than a few times. I think he'll um I think he'll be good come playoff time when when you can clutch and grab a little bit more. I'm curious to see that speaking of, I'm curious to see that Zadaroff Good Branson pairing, which I find so oh hilarious my God. in the playoffs. I'm very curious <laughs> to see what they're like in the playoffs. I'm not. Well, I mean I I'm sure they'll clutch and grab. I, I saw Ben Sherratt all of a sudden become an effective defenseman in the playoffs. Right. Jamie Alexiak has been so legit in the playoffs. Braden McNabb. So I'm I'm I find it I would just find it hard to believe that Muzzin doesn't like play sick in the playoffs still. He's had a few moments this year where he's hooked a guy or slashed a guy, it's been very obvious and it doesn't get called. I'm thinking, man, in the playoffs, you can do even more of that. Jeez, you might be a good defensive player in the playoffs. And Muzzin's one of the only guys who's come out with like some big games, too. Like We talked about Morgan Riley stepping up big in the playoffs. Just Unfortunately, Muzzin's been hurt. But Muzzin's actually been good in the playoffs for the Leafs. I think he's been really good in the playoffs. I think Riley's been better. Yeah, Ry- yeah, yeah. I'm not going to compare. I'm not saying that he's been better than Riley. But I'm saying like when we talk about guys not stepping up in the playoffs, a guy that I think consistently has been really good in the playoffs and is able to ratchet it up a level and play with some emotion and and those kinds of things that we've kind of been lacking throughout the roster. I think Muzzin's been on the other side of it. I would be floored if Muzzin's bad in the playoffs. Honestly, I would be. And so for that reason alone, I I get what you're saying. Like, if you want to even up the minutes a little bit more, sure. Maybe make them meet a little bit closer. I still wouldn't go 50-50. Well, I'm not saying do that, and I don't think they ever would. But I, I, right now, I think it's it's just such a drastic difference, and I think you need to narrow that gap a bit. Yeah. I think the biggest things for me would be, and I know people have asked about the deadline, and I know people seem to be worried about Peter Mrazek. I'm not at all worried about him. I think he's. I still think he's a really good goalie. I want him to get healthy. I want him to... I'm worried about Jack Campbell not being on the Leafs next year because he's playing too well. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I want to see it play out. I don't think it'll be unreasonable for them to negotiate a contract with Campbell. What happens when he wins the Vesna? No, I think Markstrom's going to win the Vesna. <laughs> but if he's a Vesna candidate, then yeah. I think Shesterkin should win it. But I, we'll see. I think Campbell is a legit Vesna candidate this year. 100%. He leads the league in goals saved above expected right now. Shesterkin's second. He's having an unbelievable year so far. I want to see how he, he holds up down the stretch. I want to see what he does in the playoffs. All those things, and if he does really well and they have to pay him, so be it. Who cares? Congrats. You paid a go- a good goalie. That's not well, no, the No, my end point of the is the Le- I don't think the Leafs are going to have the cap space for it. No, that's that's an off-season problem. I wouldn't care about – like, you got to go full Vegas mode right now where it's like, yeah, we're going to have, like, an illegal cap team right now for all we give a shit. Like, we're going for it in the playoffs. Jack Eichel, 
put Matthews on LTIR. Yeah, like who cares? <laughs> like it does. Like it's got to be a go for it year again. It's got to be. You know, I'm not saying push every single chip all time into the front middle of the table, but you you have to be making moves again. What's going to be tough is they have no draft picks, right? And when we talk about off season problems, that'll be another thing. Like people talk about trading Travis Dermott or whatever right now. Absolutely not. You need to have defensemen under. Do you see how bad Alex Biega is? Uh, like, I mean, were you expecting? Him of to be course good? not. But if if they traded Dermot, that guy would be their seventh defenseman right now. Yeah, I think they have better players on the Marlies than Alex Biega. Maybe, but like, you're, then you're hoping like a Philip Crawl or whatever is like actually good. That seems. Joey Duzak, what you got? Like th- those are the guys you're going to call on when one guy gets hurt. No, so. You know, those are all off-season problems. It's going to be like, yeah, I'll get a pickback for Travis Dermott, who's clearly the seventh on this team right now. Or Justin Hall, if he has value, that kind of thing. If you have to move on from Mrazic, like, unless someone's blowing you I think Justin Hall had value earlier in the year. I think teams might have caught on to the fact that Justin Hall isn't as good as they might have once thought he was. Unless someone is blowing you away with an offer right now. And I think there will always be a, a place for, like, a reasonably mobile right-handed defenseman with some size. So I think they could trade hole in a heartbeat if they wanted to um, everyone wants them the Leafs to trade for a top four right-handed defenseman on the, go find me one on the market right now I, the best I can find is Mark Pissick I would yeah no I wouldn't I wouldn't take him I mean I'd take him I think he's decent but my point is I don't think he's the difference maker you're looking for yeah that's what I mean like is he a respectable player sure but like is he a guy that I would acquire and be like yeah go play in the top four and like we're set like we're sick no but I would just take any top four defenseman at this rate. Well, yeah, but I don't know how many are available for trade from teams that are clearly out of the playoffs. Nobody. That's why the parity in the league sucks, because teams don't sit yeah, there and go Yeah, teams dog trick shit. themselves into thinking they can make the playoffs, even though they're definitely not going to make it. It's frustrating. I say best forward available. Whether it's Claude Giroux, Philip Forsberg's probably not going to be available because Nashville's going to think they're in it. They're going to pr- watch them make the playoffs. Thomas Hurdle sweepstakes. I saw someone ask about Claude Giroux. I just, honestly, I would be, I mean, and I brought up Hurdle, so what do I know? I mean, it'd be the same thing. That Man, like, I couldn't even imagine the price on Giroux. Because, like, we don't think like this, but if you don't think if Philly traded him, they go, like, there's a premium on trading for, like, our captain, like, someone who's iconic here. Like, there's not only, like, this is the player, but then you pay a little bit extra because of, like, the icon level, you know? Yeah, but Giroux, Tavares, Nylander. How awesome would that be? Dude, if they put Michael Bunting on line one over Claude Giroux, I'd lose Well, no, that, I just think Bunting Matthews works. I don't want to mess with that. It's Claude Giroux, man. It's Claude yeah, Giroux. Ma- Matthews doesn't need him. Matthews is, is rocking a 65% XG with Bunting, so screw it. Yeah, but Tavares and Nylander need him? Yeah, okay, let me finish with this. Matthews, or sorry, not Matthews. Nylander, Tavares, Kerfoot is not as good as you think it is. Everyone thinks that that line is doing great this year because the pucks are going in. They're below 50% in all the key metrics in over 160 minutes together this year at 5-5. Five and five. They're getting outshot and outchanced at 5-5. Five and five. I don't think they're sick, but I think they're respectable. I know points are a thing, and I know that Kerfoot does points to the degree that some players don't do as well, but... You can't get outshot, no chance, when you have Tavares and Nylander on the ice. How is that happening? And I'm mad that people think it's going well. I get why. I know when goals go in, you're happy about it. And we were talking about this earlier, about how at some point goals matter. You can't just focus on the XGs. The Gs matter at some point. 
but you can't be getting outshot and outchanced and outplayed at five on five with Tavares and Nylander. They're no, it's a fair, How? it's a fair point, compute. and it's and it's something that's a low key issue because you can't go into the playoffs and be like, "Well, we're praying that Marner doesn't have the yips again, and Bunting, who isn't a creator of any kind, will just help Matthews." And then, like your line two is giving up over fifty percent of the shots to I don't know a Stamkos and lot line two on Tampa you know like something like that you can't like that's not feasible or you play Washington and it's like just giving a different example outside the division but it's like what Backstrom Oshie Mantha line two like you can't be getting caved in and like pray to, like to God that you're going to score your pro- outscore your problems right Florida looks disgusting you run into a dominant five on five team and you have a line that throughout the regular season against average competition or let's call it second line average competition He's getting outshot and outchanced. What do you think is going to happen when they go up against Florida's second line? I would happily sell high on Kerfoot. They just seem to like him a lot. I don't think. I think they hold on to him because he's an asset, and you're in a win now mode. So I, I get that. But so someone asked us about this on Twitter, which I will say stands for this point. One of the reasons they really value Kerfoot is they view him as like the top six center option should one of Tavares or Matthews go get hurt they have William Nylander on their roster I don't understand and I will always say because someone asked like is not toying with Nylander at center dumb and I'll always say yes like they should have him be ready much like when Patrick Sharp used to do it for Chicago back in the day like he wouldn't always play center but they're like if we need him to play center like he's still sick and like he's good on the and Nylander is actually good on the face-offs on his strong side like yeah. they can make and it I work. think faceoffs are largely overblown at they, five and five. They can make, well, you can't just have a guy who's like deplorable on the D zone on his left that's side. That's fair. If you, if he's only winning thirty percent of them, that's no good. But my point is that it's so incremental between a guy who's what forty eight percent, fifty two percent. It doesn't really matter. Yeah, my my point being is I just I'll always loathe the lack of flexibility they give themselves by not just at least having him take some. You know, especially now, like if Matthews is out. Why not put him at center? And I'm sure they'll be fine. They're going to beat Edmonton. It's Edmonton without McDavid, with Koskinen in that, and you're at home. I'm sure, you'll be fine. Oh, no, I'm not worried about that particular game. I'm just... I know. That's what I, you're saying. I, you're yeah. saying experiment. I'm saying who gives a shit about the game. Why don't you get him some reps here? And maybe he's terrible. Maybe it's, like, awful, and, like, we look, and we're like, actually, yeah, I get it. But, like, you oh, don't know because you didn't zone, look. He's blowing yeah. coverages in the D zone. But you don't look because, like, you don't know because you don't, you don't give it... It was much like when Babs was a coach, and you sit there and go... Why is Nylander the only guy playing with Matt? Like, why did you put these lines together in preseason and never move them once? Like, don't do it to yourself. Even eight, you need to give yourself options. Even eighty-two game season, yeah. You know more or less where you're going to finish in the standings. Yeah, you're you're a playoff team. Congrats. Who cares? I don't think you're going to go balls to the wall trying to win the President's Trophy or the, trying to finish first in the division. The one top I've heard four. Some people argue about that. If we don't touch on this too, I know people are going to give us heat because you were talking about top four defensemen available from Zona. Okay, Jacob Chikrin. Well, here's the thing is, he's a left shot, and so you're going to move out Muzzin then? Or are you going to – how does it work? How does it fit? I'm not in love with trading for, for him, to be honest. I think he's a good player. I think 30 teams should want him. But, you know, GTA, age, he's, he's GTA a top boy, he went to country day. I just don't think it makes sense within the confines of their roster right now. If he was right-handed, it would make all the sense in the world. I just don't know why they would trade so many assets for, and he would cost a boat like an arm and a leg. And the fact that Leafs don't have a first-round pick this year, 
which you know Zona is loading up for. So it's like, how how could it possibly happen? They'd have to give up a top prospect and More future draft that. picks. And, More. No, but that's my point, is the package would have to be huge. Yeah, At, like to such an extreme level. And because of that, I'd be sitting there looking at it going, I don't know. I don't know why this would even be worth the conversation for me. I'd be sitting there looking for, you know, potentially another vet defenseman kind of thing. Someone who you could like trust to go in, give you, you know, some dependable minutes, nothing crazy at at absolute worst. Ideally, you would get a top four defenseman. But I know last year they traded for a defenseman that they gave up actual real assets and draft picks to acquire players that they never used in the playoffs. That's the thing. You know what I mean? Like, and that that just seemed dumb to me. The David Riddick one never made sense to me, and I tweeted at the time too. And you know, well, got, trading for a number shit. seven or number eight defenseman, can you trade for a number five or number six defenseman? Can you trade for a guy that you'd actually want to play in a game if push came to shove? Yeah, like you're sitting there going, "I I need to get guys." So would you? More important for you, top four defenseman or a top six winger? Top six winger. Easy for me. Because I think that, that that's my belief in Timothy Lilligren. That's my belief in Rasmus Sandin, giving them more minutes. So I'm not as worried about the blue line. I'm more worried about Alex Kerfoot at left wing. I don't know if that's a long-term solution. I want that line to be better. Top six forward for me as well. Not for the reasons you said, though. But they are valid reasons, not to put down the reasons you said. Those, those are valid. I don't want to watch another fucking playoff where it's like Mitch won't shoot. Someone gets hurt. We only have three forwards. Michael Bunting can't create. Ely Mikheyev is floating muffins from the top of the Matthews circle. Is on a low shooting percentage bender. Yep. I don't want to see any of this shit again. Alex Kerfoot <laughs> turns back into a pumpkin. Uh, like all this stuff. I don't want to see it. I'll, just give us another guy. Give us another legit guy. He's going to come in and he's just going to be a weapon on this team. That's that's where I'm at. Like, just bring in a guy. I don't care who. I want to see someone who can put the puck in the net. I want to see someone who can go out there. And I know because when, and I always say, which I know this sounds subjectively dumb, but I will subjectively say it's true. When they went into overtime, there was basically like four, three guys that I would sit there and be like, these are three guys that can score. And that's it. I mean, That's did you think Alec like. Martinez was going to score the game-winning goal in the Cup No, line? but I think L.A. had a number of guys throughout that lineup who I thought were viable scoring threats. I think Jarrett Stoll on, like, line three, line four was sick. I think Mike Richards, who I think in that year, Mike Richards was on the fourth line. He, I'm not sure what part of his career he was in. I think he was still an effective player at that yeah, point. Yeah, but, like, you don't think Mike Richards in overtime could go out there? Jared Stoll scored six goals in 78 games yeah, the but year I they still, won the Cup. But I still think Jared Stoll <laughs> is a scoring threat, like a guy who can go out there and make some magic happen. Eight goals in 78 games in the other year they won the Cup. Get out yeah. of here, Anthony. That's fine. Come on. But you're There's not talking— No, but you're not talking about— a random regular season game. You're saying talking can about it, David Camp basically yeah. in terms of goal scoring. <laughs> but is David Camp possible, capable of going out there and having some actual magic? Because Jared Stoll did that for a large chunk of his what career. What is magic? What does that even mean? Like, can he go out there and make it make a special play? I don't think Jared Stoll can. <laughs> I think I think those guys are completely capable of it. 
We see veterans all the time. I think that's winning bias. I think once a team wins, you say that about them in hindsight, but in the moment, I don't think you'd actually Dude, say Jared that about Jared Stoll was an actually sick hockey player. What are you talking about? Not, I'm, I'm so- talking about the six goals he scored in 78 games the year they won the Cup and the eight goals he scored in 78 games the But year was Jared Stoll in his prime a good hockey player? Yeah, but you're not talking about him in his prime. You're talking about the player he was that year they won the Cup and he didn't score that year. No, that... But my point is, guys who once were able to do it consistently can still go out in the playoffs and have a moment where they make it happen. I think that's a hundred percent logic. But it wouldn't be shocking to me to watch Jarrett Stoll go out there. Who scored the overtime winner to eliminate Vancouver for LA when they swept them? Why don't you go watch the fucking goal? <sighs> I think we're off the rails here. No, man. no, go look at the goal. Who scored the goal? <laughs> I'm, do you I'm know who scored the goal? I'm so dumb with. This. But do you know who scored the goal? <laughs> I'm guessing it was Jarrett. Goddamn of course Stoll. it was Jarrett Stoll. Because <laughs> he's capable of going out there and having a moment because he was once a really good player. And I'm Anyone's not saying... capable of going out there and having a moment, man. It's hockey. It's the most random sport. But the Leafs guys weren't. When you were watching them, no one was sitting there going, Ilya Mikheyev is capable of having a moment right now. It was not remotely on you're, the table. You're going to have to to eat those words not. when he scores the cup-winning goal. I hope overtime. that he does. <laughs> I hope that he does. I pray that he does. When TJ Brody scores the cup-winning goal on a, on a wraparound. Well, no, a D-man scoring is fine. I mean, if Morgan Riley scored or whatever, it wouldn't. if Jake Muzzin scored, it wouldn't have shocked me. But I'm saying when you have forwards that used to be top six forwards that are a little bit out of their prime, so they're not what they once were, but they're still capable of flashing – which is what Mike Richards and Jarrett Stoll were as just examples, they're at least a viable threat or an option, or at least someone who makes you raise your eyebrow when they're on the ice because you're sitting there going, they're capable of a play. They're capable of a play and making something happen. But a lot of the Leaf guys we were watching outside of the three because Tavares was hurt, you were basically just going, they don't look even remotely on the table as an option. Well, and I get why people don't trust the Leafs in clutch moments. They haven't given you any reason to, and until they do, that's going to be the perception. So that's that's just yeah. the way sports work. You know, you have to rewrite your narrative. But a guy like Kasha now, now I could sit there, and if they were going in overtime and everyone always picks, you know, who's going to score in overtime, I could sit there with a straight face and be like, he's going to score the goal. He looks good tonight. He looks like a player to me tonight. I'm going to pick Kieringval he when he's having one of his good nights. Yeah, but he doesn't do that in the playoffs. He just regroups and gets caught all the time because teams game plan it. He's going to regroup, gain the zone, rip it through someone's legs, bar down. It's going to happen. He had that one where he hit bar against Price, right, where he beat him pretty clean. He's got a good shot. He's got a heavy shot. We talked about it. All right, we got to get out of here. We got to get out of here. We've, we've been talking about Jared Stoll for 10 minutes. All right. Great player. I love the Jared COVID's Stoll. COVID's infected your brain, man. I'm <laughs> <laughs> Capable of having a moment, man. That's all. That that's what the playoffs are. They're just moments. All right, we will be back next week to have a moment. Enjoy the Edmonton game. Enjoy the Colorado game. We'll be back soon, folks. Take it easy. Everyone is looking at me. Time is running now. We're down by three. Look inside yourself. What do you see? The pain is in your mind. No, nothing stops me. Everyone is looking at me. Time is running now. We're down by three. Yourself, I know what I see. Do you have the guts to do it for me? Gonna sweat. Gonna work. Gonna burn. It's gonna hurt.